This is R.J. Rushdoony, Easy Chair Number 83, November the 7th, 1984. One of the things that I'd like to discuss today is the fact that very few people are thoroughly appreciative of the extent to which a turnaround has been made in this century. The last century was a time of a steady movement away from Christianity into humanism. It meant the triumph also of Hegelian thinking, which led to Marxism, Darwinism, which applied Hegelian cultural evolution to the sphere of biology. By the beginning of this century, you had, for example, the main editorial writer of the Hearst Papers, Ferguson, writing about a one-world order, demanding that we move from a government of laws to a government of men, believing in effect in a world socialist order. William Randolph Hearst himself tended to leftist views. There was very little criticism of this. In fact, the whole of the culture was moving in that direction and away from a Christian foundation. The early years of this century, the last years of the last, the early years of this century, saw the beginnings of a Christian protest against this, which led, in the first decade, to the publication of a series of essays by various uh, American and English and one or two German scholars, I think perhaps a Frenchman as well, entitled The Fundamentals. The authors were Anglicans, Baptists, Presbyterians, and belonged to a variety of communions. Without exception, they asserted the orthodox perspective with regard to the Bible and the major doctrines, and spoke out against the rising tide of modernism and humanism. Of course, the name of the series of essays was picked up by a particular group, and subsequently they became known as fundamentalists. Well, we have just seen a major triumph of fundamentalism. Yesterday, as you know, was the presidential election. According to the Harris poll, 20% of those registered were registered as a result of the activities of the moral majority. The moral majority was one group among a number of Christian groups active in the past election. The election was far from a Christian victory, but it did indicate the developing power of the Christian community. I do believe that we're going to see 
a much greater extension of that power in the years ahead. Either that or we are going to have some very serious problems and a major loss of freedom. Now, what we are seeing in this century is a polarization. A polarization in which on the one hand we have humanism with socialism and all its attendant beliefs, and on the other hand, orthodox Christianity. The battle has been a bitter one. Churches, Catholic and Protestant, have been captured by modernism or extensively infiltrated. On the other hand, there has been a growing grassroots Christianity, a militancy that is very, very important. I have, for example, in my hand an interesting and very important book by James Hitchcock with an introduction by Joseph Sobron. The title is The Pope and the Jesuits. The subtitle, John Paul II and the New Order in the Society of Jesus, or the Jesuits. The cost is three ninety-five. It was published by the National Committee of Catholic Laymen this year in New York City, and the address is 150 East 35th Street, New York, 10016. It is one of a series of National Committee of Catholic Laymen books, all of them an excellent critique of modernism and of socialism and of the various evils that have infiltrated the Catholic Church. Now, I'll come to this book again a little later to discuss some of the things that uh, Hitchcock deals with. Well, perhaps I'll do so now. He deals extensively with liberation theology, which today has taken over vast segments of Protestantism and Roman Catholic thinking. It has infected not only fundamentalists, but also Calvinists, so that liberation theology has gone across the boards. The Modernists and the fundamentalists alike have extensively bought this doctrine. Then you have also the very, very extensive infiltration of ideas favoring minimal faith in fundamental circles, the idea is, well, if we just stand in terms of John 3.16 and being born again, we don't have to fight, as I've had people tell me, about abortion and homosexuality. We don't want to antagonize people on those issues. Let's simply concentrate on the basics. Well, as Hitchcock says, there are those who, within the Catholic Church, want a kind of minimal allegiance to the church rather than a clear-cut statement and a clear-cut stand in favor of 
orthodoxy. The kind of thinking he describes is really anti-Christian. For example, he gives one uh, thinker, president of a Jesuit university in El Salvador, who has spoken against violence and says the highest violence is institutionalized. And, of course, the institutionalization is in the uh, capitalistic order, the capitalistic societies and their states and their churches. And he says violence must be redeemed. And sinful social structures can themselves only be redeemed by violence. Now, this is an interesting statement. Here you attack everything you dislike as violence, and then you say it can only be redeemed by violence. This is the kind of rather dishonest thinking which prevails. Hitchcock calls to uh, demands for abortion, for the legalization of homosexuality, for the killing of defective infants, and so on. He cites examples where a clear-cut statement by the Pope has been reinterpreted by Jesuit scholars to make it mean exactly the opposite of what it says. Of course, this is nothing new. We've seen biblical scholars do this with the Bible all the time. They tell us the Bible, which calls for the death penalty on homosexuality, isn't against homosexuality at all. And they will spend chapters in a linguistic analysis of the very obvious wording of the text to read something else into it. Hitchcock quotes... By the way, Avery Dulles' statement that, uh, and I quote, although the men of the society, that is the Jesuits, are papists, they are this only where there must be, and in nothing more, uh, and even then only with an eye to the glory of God and the general good, unquote. He cites also the compromise of some Jesuits with Hinduism, their readiness to uh, say that uh, there can be a syncretistic alliance with Hinduism. Again, he cites examples of uh, Jesuit statements which tell us that uh, Jesus is to be identified with humanity today, and we should not in our devotional life try to reconstruct the historical Jesus of 20 centuries ago. One of the passages that I thought was uh, very telling When the Marxists within the Jesuit order are exposed, they react venomously. I quote, When accused of being Marxists, progressive Jesuits in turn accuse their critics of irresponsible name-calling. 
arguing that a commitment to social justice is not exclusive to Marxism and that it is playing into Marxist hands to imply that it is. This being the case, it would seem reasonable that non-Marxist social reformers would want to distinguish their beliefs from those of the Marxists as carefully as possible, but such is not the case. On the contrary, in practice, it is often impossible to judge which parts of the radical Jesuit social programs are Marxist and which are not, unquote. Well, this book gives you a great deal of uh, material of this sort. As I say, all of these put out by the National Committee are outstanding studies. Now, the same kind of thing has been done with regard to a variety of Protestant churches. Given this, how can we say there is a polarization when the enemy has infiltrated our ranks so heavily? Well, I think that infiltration has been a blessing in disguise. So many people, Protestant and Catholic, have been ready to take the faith for granted and to leave all the thinking and all the decision-making to the clergy. That day is over. It can no longer be done. And you have a growing militancy on the part of the clergy who are opposed to this, and especially of the laity. The number of lay groups active today in the country is legion. One of the most important things about the election which was held yesterday was the fact that pro-life people wore out shoe leather, going from door to door, working for their candidates. In many instances, they put their own money into mailings to people to help the right kind of candidate. What the pro-life people did was phenomenal. It is unprecedented in our history. Now, the League of Women Voters gained national attention by sponsoring the two presidential debates. But all that the League of uh, Women Voters have done in their history is nothing compared to what the pro-life people have done this year alone. They gained a great deal in this experience. They learned a great deal about politics. They deepened their faith. This is what's happening. So, roots of the faith are growing deeper, and things are happening. As a result, there is a very, very important development now, the Christian entrance into the political sphere. They are there to stay. Now to backtrack a bit, to deal with another book, an older one, published in 1965 by Harcourt Brace and World, A.J.P. Taylor, an English historian, the title of the book, From Sarajevo to Potsdam. 
It deals with the history of Europe from World War I to the end of World War II. At the beginning of World War I, Europe was, in a sense, a single civilized community, he says, more so than even at the height of the Roman Empire. However, we can add that it was a unified community because it was unified around an easygoing, tolerant humanism. However, a part of that humanism which was dying was the earlier liberalism. The liberalism from the economic sphere that went back to Adam Smith. Adam Smith believed in the invisible hand. Now, Smith was not a Christian, but his background was Scottish Presbyterianism. And Adam Smith had a Calvinistic hangover. As a result, he did believe there was some kind of invisible hand, a God behind the scenes who provided an established order. In terms of that established order, men had freedom. Now let's stop and consider that point for a moment. Where you have order, good order, godly order, you have freedom. Because then you can move around, you have safety, you can concentrate on your work and your enjoyment of what is yours, your family or whatever else you prize, without any fear and without loss. Now, as long as men believe that God provided an ultimate order and that God had established laws in terms of which men, the marketplace, nations, and human activities could flourish, then men could move around in terms of that given fact, an order. They had freedom. As a result, men could travel the length and the breadth of Europe in 1914 as a result of this older liberalism without a passport until they reached the frontiers of Russia and the frontiers of the Turkish Empire. Today you don't move anywhere across borders without a passport. Major freedom has disappeared. However, by World War I, socialism was coming in as a result of Prussianism and its espousal of state control of education, which is socialism. It was also moving in through a variety of socialist legislations, movements, 
and political parties. So that the freedom that Europe enjoyed in 1914 was on its last legs. It was beginning to wane throughout Europe. So that the war did not do anything but hasten events. And it is interesting that the various countries, to be more efficient, they thought, instituted wartime socialism. Now, that wartime socialism did not increase their efficiency. A good case can be made for the fact that had it been more efficient, it would have hampered their war effort even more than it did. But they believed it was necessary. Even in this country, in 1917, when we went into war, we proceeded to various socialistic steps, including the control of the railways. Civilization in 1914 was, as Taylor points out, predominantly urban. The towns all over Europe and the cities were very much alike. And there were, he says, three great symbols of modern architecture. These were the railway station, the town hall, and the opera house. Now, this is very revealing. No longer was the church the center of a city. This had been once the case. Now it was the railway station and the town hall. And very close to the town hall, very often, would be the opera house. The new faith being in culture. Well, Europe then was increasingly moving towards a humanistic, socialist perspective. Meanwhile, there were other forces at work, the Christian forces. Fundamentalism began to grow very rapidly in this country in particular, in the teens and especially the twenties and thirties. It began to have its impact here and there on the continent. There was a Catholic revival also. As a result, there was a, a peculiar character to the years between the wars. Taylor calls attention to it, and he says, I quote, A general strike in Great Britain before the war would have been accompanied by violence. In 1926 it was a harmless operation. Thus the war had contradictory effects, Bolshevism in Russia, a more secure society elsewhere. Outside politics, certainly there was no marked increase in violence, rather the reverse. Murders and criminal assaults were no more frequent than before, while on the other hand some states abolished capital punishment. 
Human behavior was gentler. Women could walk the streets unattended, something they had hesitated to do before the war. The police no longer shunned certain districts after nightfall. People were kinder to children and more concerned about their welfare. People were kinder to animals. Brutal sports declined even in England, their most obstinate home, unquote. Now, of course, uh, Taylor is a liberal, and hence he saw the decline of capital punishment as an asset. Nonetheless, his statement is true. What was happening at that time was that the de-Christianization was beginning to be turned around slowly but firmly. Moreover, one of the things we must not forget, the pre-war humanism was still coasting on a background of Christianity. The humanists all went to schools that still had some Christian teaching. Most of them actually had been baptized because whether Protestant or Catholic, the families still retained some relationship to the church. So there was a veneer of Christianity. But the polarization was there. Humanism was moving towards a more militant expression, one which had come to focus in Russia and in Turkey in radical humanist states. While on the other hand, Christians were beginning to become more self-consciously Christian. So, the years before the war were very revealing, very important in that respect. We should remember that one of the reasons for a certain order before the war was that at that time there were uh, three great European powers, France, Great Britain, and Russia, which before World War I controlled 80% of the world. And after the war, the power of France and Great Britain was somewhat enhanced as far as their colonial holdings were concerned. There had been no major war in Europe since 1871 until 1914. This was a long period of peace. There is no question that it had its effect in stabilizing society. As a result, the full impact of humanism was not felt. Humanism began to separate itself from the facade and the veneer of Christianity in the period between the two wars. 
it became more obvious that it was in control of education, for example, in this country, in that era. After World War II, the polarization began to be much more obvious and much more rapid. Now let's back up a bit, because I want to deal with the background of all of this. When the Reformation began, Europe was in a shambles. The Renaissance had been covertly anti-Christian, and sometimes openly so. The great states had worked to corrupt the church and to control it, and now with the Reformation, Europe was suddenly challenged. The challenge came none too soon. Medical historians have estimated that at the time, Europe may have been one-third venereally diseased. Life and morals were at a low ebb. Well, in a few years, you had both the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation, and a religious impetus that began to uh, change the character of Europe to re-establish Christian priorities. Unhappily, what both the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation failed to note because they were concentrating on each other to the exclusion of the humanist threat. The Renaissance temper triumphed over both of them in the form of the Enlightenment. About 1660, Europe turned from Reformation and Counter-Reformation to a totally different culture. As I've said on several occasions, whatever we may think about Philip II and some of his very serious uh, personal uh, failures and immoralities, Nonetheless, the fact is that he made a chapel the center of the palace and had the graves of his ancestors there on the, either side as he moved towards the chapel so that he would be reminded he was a mortal man. His successors could not have cared less. You had in France, in Spain, in England, in the German states, in Austria, everywhere, a movement to a toleration of religion or a surface adherence, but no great concern. The Enlightenment was the beginning of the dechristianization of Europe on a very serious level. It secularized 
Western thought. What had begun late in the Middle Ages, and men like Abelard were important in this, came to fruition in the Renaissance, now took over. It was an upper-class thing, but it was concerned with changing the whole of society and reorganizing all things. One of the consequences was religious toleration. Not freedom, but toleration. Toleration was in the name of being more civilized and ending all this nonsense about being hostile one to another, but in reality, behind that facade of toleration was the conviction that there was now a foolproof method for discovering truth, science, and reason, and therefore the church was to be bypassed. So that with the toleration went, and this is what you don't get in the textbooks, but there is uh, some data on this in one uh, book published, oh, now out of print, in 1967, John G. Gagliardo, Enlightened Despotism. Gagliardo, G-A-G-L-I-A-R-D-O. And Gagliardo says that the Catholic rulers began to regard church property as a means of revenue. So they began to restrict church ownership of property. They began to secularize it. They began to confiscate the monasteries. And they uh, then began to control the relationship of the church within their realm to the Vatican. For example, and I quote from Gagliardo, Some rulers required accounts of church money sent to Rome to be submitted to the government. Others, like Pombal in Portugal, expelled papal nuncios and in many other ways limited severely the kinds of appeals that could be made to Rome from ecclesiastical tribunals, religious foundations, and so on. There was, to continue, not quoting now, interference in church ritual and ceremony, and even with regard to creeds. The educational function of the clergy were removed or reduced in the Catholic countries, and this was also true in the Protestant countries. Church properties, as I said, were confiscated. For example, and I quote again from Gagliardo, the dissolution of monasteries in the lands of the Austrian crown was begun on a large scale by Joseph II, who suppressed nearly 800 houses during his reign. Those engaged in useful charitable work, nursing and education, for example, were allowed to remain, but the property of others was confiscated and held in a special religious fund 
created in 1782 to meet the financial demands of the pastoral obligations of the secular clergy, unquote. Where the funds were confiscated and still used for the church, they were administered by the church for public purposes, which could include a great deal more than the support of the church. Now, this kind of thing is seldom written about, but it was very, very prevalent. And as a result, the church everywhere was greatly weakened throughout the uh, era of the Enlightenment from 1660 to the French Revolution, which was a culmination of this kind of thing. As a result, Gagliardo summarizes the new faith of most people, which came, of course, from the philosophers. In this view, man and society were always hovering on the brink of chaos and could be kept from dissolution and in some semblance of order only by the most rigid and unswerving adherence to the rules that reason had created. An unswerving adherence to the rules that reason created, no matter how artificial they might be. In both the religious and the philosophical arguments, in any case, the state appeared as an essentially punitive or corrective institution, in which all dispute was the beginning of disintegration in obedience to a single authority, the only method of preservation, unquote. In other words, the faith was statism. Statism. Well, the 19th century, as a result of Hegel, Marx, and Darwin, furthered this faith. This century is seeing a challenge to it. It is seeing the breakdown of that humanistic faith in the state because the state is proving to be incompetent, incapable of doing anything right. Now, it's true that most of the electorate still has not bought that. It is also true that all too many Christians still do not see the issue. In the election which was held yesterday, the Republican position was that the state must be limited in its power. The Democratic position was that the state is good and kind and compassionate and can be given more power to solve our problems. It was a mixed victory. Reagan won, but given a little bit of prosperity and lower inflation, most people were ready to believe again in the beneficence of the state because they voted through bond issues in one place after another so that they were saying, well, let's roll back the state, but then uh, let's go on playing the old game. 
So there's a great deal more that needs to be done. But the polarization is setting in. And we need to recognize that it is a very, very real and important factor. Now, on to another issue. In uh, Natural History for November 1984, there is an article by John Maynard Smith, Science versus or Science and Myth. Now, some of you may be aware that in the modern perspective, a myth is a story which tries to teach a moral truth. Thus, these people say that the whole of the Bible is full of myth. Religion is essentially a mythological concern, but that this is not necessarily bad, some theologians try to tell us, because... Uh, this is what morality is about. Myths try to convey some moral principles. Well, uh, John Maynard Smith uh, comments on uh, something by another Smith. And he says, Smith is demanding of evolutionary biology that it be a myth, that is, a story with a moral message. Now, obviously, science today is mythological in the old-fashioned Christian sense of the term. However, this is not the sense that he means it. So, he concludes by saying three uh, views are possible, and basically he opts for the third which he says is the only sensible one, that we need both myths and scientific theories. And that, in a sense, uh, we're going to have to have both. And he says, so far from values being derived from science, Monod saw science as depending on on values. And he says, I believe that uh, values are necessary for the practice of science. So, here we have a growing bankruptcy expressed. They are ready to apply the same kind of mythological thinking to science. They are ready to exercise uh, that same premise within the sphere of science and to confess a need for values. Now, another point. U.S. News and World Report in the issue of November 5, 1984, had an interesting article, the editorial, on, uh, well, the title is Next, Young versus Old? Question mark. And he raises the uh, point that there is some polarization now between the elderly and those who are not retired. The elderly are becoming a major problem because of Social Security. 
tax money paid by everyone goes into Social Security, which with Medicare now consumes 28.1% of federal spending. Today's system is nothing less than a massive transfer of wealth from the young, many of them struggling to the elderly, many living comfortably. And so, the editorial says, this can only get worse given the birth rate. Today, three workers support one pensioner, but the ratio of workers to pensioners is decreasing on the side of workers. This means trouble. So, there is a real problem developing, that of hostility between the old and the young over this issue. And that, too, is a problem that uh, the state cannot take care of. It's a problem that only the revival of family life, of private funding, is capable of dealing with. Now to another subject, a letter from one of you, from Betty Fellerson. And I quote, Perhaps someone else has already reported the following item to you. It is not all that different from incidents you reported several years ago from other states. A caller to the Jim Eason talk show, KGO San Francisco, on October 5, identified himself as a paralegal who had been trying to help a woman whose two-and-a-half-year-old child had been taken from her. In nursery school, an adult noticed a small wound or scratch on the child's elbow and reported it to a superior as possible child abuse. Eventually, some minion of government decided the little one should be taken from his mother, and the child is now at UC Hospital. The mother cannot get him back for three months. Much was made of the child's being less than immaculately clean by the end of a day at nursery school. So what's new? The mother's case had us not been helped by her inability to name the father of the child. She had been raped, but had also been promiscuous. Shortly after the paralegal concluded his remarks, there was a call from a public school teacher who said teachers are expected to report any evidence of possible child abuse to their superiors or are obligated to report to some other authority in such matters. She said she could lose her credential for not reporting such a symptom. She said that a child age not mentioned, who had said, I don't want to go home, was immediately taken by the state without even querying the child as to why he didn't want to go home. The parents were separated or divorced, and the father had visitation rights. He was given the child. As Eason said, there were plenty of times in his childhood when he dreaded going home, when he'd been in a fight, torn clothing, lost his bicycle, etc. Another caller told of a woman who was physically abused by her son, a teenage son, and has been able to get no help at all from the powers that be. The only way out for her, she has been advised, is to pretend to take him on a trip and abandon him. Then, 
the bureaucracy will care for him, unquote. Well, now to something on a somewhat different level. Uh, this from uh, the Farm Journal for November 1984 by John A. Harrington, a Nebraska cattle feeder. The title is Shoe Boxes Replace This Computer. I back the pickup toward the front door of computers galore. It is remarkable that the components I am returning still fit into three boxes, especially given their chaotic order the night before when I was on the verge of smashing the entire setup into the fireplace. I had gone through computer hell, a fiery underworld filled with bites and floppy disks and cathode tubes. I had sold my soul for a promise that the computer would revolutionize my farm. Now, sir, what can we do for you? She smiles, admiring sales tape, still hot from the uh, cash register. I'd like to return this merchandise. What seems to be the trouble, she asks, faking sincerity. I'm dissatisfied. I demand my money back. Oh, yes, Mr. Harrington, she says. I remember you're a farmer. What's that got to do with the price of software, I snap? No offense meant, sir, she says sweetly. I only remember the many challenges you were going to tackle with our RX-7 centralized bookkeeping, keep inventories, compute livestock rations. This blasted computer won't compute, I say firmly. Ever since you sold me this computer, all I can do day and night is feed it information. Names, dates, scale tickets, invoices, tax returns, my wife even made me enter farm journal recipes. But will it give me one ounce of data back? No way, at least nothing that makes any sense. Garbage in, garbage out, she says with her eyes the color of steel. I hope you're not suggesting this fiasco is my fault, I say hotly. I thought I finally had things under control the other night. So I asked the computer to balance a new hog ration. Do you know what flashed on the screen? The ingredients for a banana cream pie. You don't need to return the RX-7. You need to learn to use it. And for only $275, I can enroll you in our computer school. Just as I am about to blow my stack, three shoppers walk into the store. I immediately take off my hat and wave it frantically over my head. I'm sorry, folks, but we're going to have to ask you to leave. One of our computers has developed a small nuclear leak, a leak and we're a tad worried about fallout. Watch the newspapers for our after-radiation sale. The three interlopers bolt out the door. How dare you, she loses, yells, finally losing her cool. Give me my refund, I state, and I promise never to darken your tradeways again. That's simply impossible, she cries, her voice cracking under the sudden strain. Once her tears would have softened my heart, but I had recently shed a few myself. Leaving the shoebox system had been a big mistake. There was a box for canceled checks and a box for deposit slips. 
At the end of the year, I would carefully hand both boxes to Hank Feaster, local bookkeeping and hunting buddy, who filled out my taxes and updated my balance sheet, not once complaining about the quality of my input. Well, I say, wishing to put the entire nightmare behind me, the money isn't that important, it's the principle. Suppose you wrote a letter of apology. A letter of apology? Yeah, something that says the computer age often promises more than it can deliver, but that it's not for everyone. That the ways of farming may be too explosive for the microchip, and then sign it as an official representative of the data processing community. Not much of a victory, I think to myself, as she bangs away at the store's word processor. But if the whiz kids of today become the super farmers of tomorrow, I'll gracefully retire to the old rocker, recalling the good old days when a farm ran on hard work, a little luck, and a few shoeboxes, unquote. Well, besides humor, there is a lot of sense in that article. Now, I'm not against computers. Calcedon has its share of them, and a number of the staff members, myself accepted, uh, have computers, and they put them to good use. But computers have been oversold, and people are expecting all kinds of things from them. Uh, one of the things that uh, I think is particularly horrifying is the number of computers there are in the hands of brokers. And brokers across the country are sitting up nights wherever I travel, I find this, playing games with their computers, feeding all kinds of data about stocks and bonds and uh, commodities into their computer, and then going out during the day and losing money. Losing it more than ever before. Why? Well, The markets are not mechanical things. They are not mechanical things. When you feed data into a computer, you are assuming that all there is in the equation is data. But in the marketplace, there are people behind the items on the board. There is weather that determines the price of things. There is supply and demand. There are political factors. And when people try to put everything in a computer and say, this is going to give data to us. Now we know how to invest your money. They are saying that life is mechanistic. The world is mechanistic. And a machine is going to give us the answers. And that's why they're losing their shirts. Now, let me restate this. The computer is a valuable tool. It's been a great instrument for human progress. It can be a valuable tool in a stockbroker's or a bond or a commodity broker's office also as a means of keeping data and information. But when you try to take the computer and make a profit out of it, 
You might as well go to Balaam's ass. There was more sense in Balaam's ass or any jackass that you can find. We have a lot of them along the roadway here up in the mountains. Real ones, I mean. The animal variety. More sense in them than there is in a computer. So don't ask the computer to be a prophet. It cannot be that. And it upsets me religiously when I see people trying to take the computer an excellent tool. So don't write me letters telling me that I'm downgrading the computer. It's an excellent tool. It's a blessing. Don't make it into a curse by expecting it to do what it cannot do. God never ordained the computer in his eternal plan to come forth someday as a prophet. Well, <laughs> so much for that. Our time is really just about over. And I had some other things I wanted to deal with. One in particular I think I'll wait until the time after next because I hope to have something special next time. A very important book by an historian, When Fathers Ruled. And I want to thank one of you, John Lofton, for letting me knew, know about that book. It is exceptional, John, and thank you. An uh, especially important study. Well, our time is up. Thank you for listening. God bless you, and I'll look forward to being with you in two weeks.